0: Good morning, everyone. So we are going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning. So if you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn there, um, you'll be ready to go when we get to uh, reading through it. So why 1 Kings 18? Well, I was going to do 1 Kings 18 and 19. It seemed like um, I've, I've never on that section, but kind of caught my attention recently. I was going to do 18 and 19. Um, seemed kind of cool. God on the mountain, God in the valley, but then I got into it, and chapter 19 is maybe a little more complicated, and maybe saying some things that I didn't anticipate, and so um, there's enough in 18. So we're just going to do 18, all right? So that's why. Um, so I'll, I'll mention this guy a few times, Dale Ralph Davis uh he's got some awesome commentaries that are very readable and uh want to start with a quote from him on this section so he says William Grimshaw was not convinced a married couple in the village of Hayworth had made high claims to holiness but their pastor harbored doubts about the genuineness of their professions especially since rumors reached him of the couple's tight-fistedness and hard-heartedness don't worry i'm not going to do this um But Grimshaw, this is back in the 1700s, borrowed a beat-up weaver's jacket and cap and disguised as a destitute beggar, arrived at his parishioner's house pleading for a night's lodging. The man refused. The beggar pressed his case, citing his need and destitution. The man was unyielding. No help would be extended. With that, Grimshaw whipped off his disguise and lectured the fellow about covetousness and callousness. Why such extreme pastoral measures? because sometimes only extreme measures can flush out the whole truth. So that's the point of using that illustration is that Hayworth or not Hayworth, Grimshaw used extreme pastoral measures to flush out the truth and the point of our passage is that sometimes or one of the points of the passage is that God will go to extreme measures to not only flush out the truth, but also to get our attention. So, 1 Kings 18, a little bit of um, orientation, because not all of you took this Old Testament class um, that Dwight mentioned, and so maybe all of you are not super familiar with the background of 1 Kings 18. So, just brief summary here. Where are we at in history? So, as a result of King Solomon's idolatry, remember he married all of these wives and so they worshipped other gods and they led him astray, he chose, it's his fault so his heart was divided, his heart turned away from uh, single-minded focus and devotion to Yahweh and he worshipped these other gods and as a result the kingdom of Israel was torn and divided so Solomon's son Rehoboam succeeded him And he was foolish and prideful. He was kind of like a puff-your-chest, kind of alpha male. He wanted to rule with an even heavier hand than his father. The people rebelled against him, and the ten tribes established themselves in the north. So Jerusalem, Judah, and the south. They established themselves in the north under the reign of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam figured that the hearts of the people would soon incline back to Jerusalem, to the house of David, when they went to worship the Lord in the temple of Jerusalem. So what did he do? He made two calves of gold and put them in Bethel and one in Dan. And so if they had their own centers of worship, then they wouldn't be tempted to go back to Jerusalem to worship and return to join the southern kingdom so Jeroboam and Rehoboam both wicked kings they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord their successors were no better um, with precious few exceptions so fast forward to Ahab son of Omri who's now king of Israel which is referring to the northern kingdom Omri's wicked Ahab's wicked and to make matters worse Ahab married who? Jezebel okay and Jezebel came from a family that worshipped Baal and so Ahab worships Baal he erects a temple to Baal with an altar to Baal and so in 1 Kings 16.33 if you just flip back a page probably in your Bible Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him and that's saying something So who is this Baal? Who's this God that he's worshiping? Well, the the term Baal actually just means Lord. It's a title. And usually Baal in the Bible refers to an ancient Semitic God named Hadad. Okay, so Baal Hadad, Lord Hadad. In the pantheon of ancient Near Eastern gods, the chief God was El. And Baal Hadad was his son, And so he's typically depicted as a bull. This is kind of broad brush, but um, he's typically depicted as a bull. And he was the god of the storm, the god of fertility, right? Because the rain brings the crops. So the fertility of the ground depended on him sending the rain. So 1 Kings 16 ends by explaining Ahab's rise to power, marriage to Jezebel, and his consequent Worship of Baal, the storm and fertility god, right? Now, look at 17.1. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as Yahweh, those capital letters, the covenant name, um, as Yahweh the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah's the faithful prophet of Yahweh. Ahab's the wicked king, leading the ten tribes further into idolatry and evil. And so what is Elijah doing here? He is throwing down the gauntlet. You know what the gauntlet was back when, you know, knights wore these metal, you know, gloves? Throw it down. Like, come on. (laughs) Challenging this other person, or in this case, challenging the so-called God, issuing a challenge. So Baal's supposed to be the storm God. He's supposed to be the God of the rains. And so Elijah, whose name means my God is Yahweh, declares that Yahweh's in charge of the weather, and there will be no rain until Elijah, Elijah his servant, says so. So this is direct challenge in Baal's face And after that, Elijah leaves. The ravens feed him for a while, and then Yahweh sends him to the widow at Zarephath. Remember that story? Uh, Remember her? Because of Elijah, her oil jug never ran dry. Her jar of flour never ran out until the drought was over. So needless to say, there was no love lost between Ahab and Elijah. Ahab hated Elijah, and he wanted to kill him. And Elijah was notoriously hard to find, (laughs) which made him hard to kill, right? So this brings us to our passage for the morning. 1 Kings 18, um, you can follow along as we work our way through this chapter. So we're going to see who the real God is and how we should respond to the real God. So Elijah threw down the gauntlet. Now here comes the showdown, okay? So we're going to read through verses 1 to 40, and I'll stop a few places and, and make some comments. So this is all under point number one. The other points will be a little shorter. Um, so this is the showdown up on the mountaintop, um, and we're going to consider a few themes um, after that. So after many days, the word of Yahweh, word of the Lord, came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So again, Baal's the Canaanite god of storms. Israel's been worshipping Baal. So Dale Ralph Davis, remember I mentioned this book? I'll plug it a few times. He's got just excellent, excellent commentaries, very readable. Um, he writes this, there had been 3 years of no dew, no rain. That's bad press for Baal and his alleged fertility cult. So not only is this, this kind of an in-your-face exposure of the impotence of Baal, drought was also a covenant curse, a covenant punishment for disobedience. So listen to Deuteronomy 1, 11, 16 to 17. So Moses was speaking. He's warning the Israelites in, in preparation for entering the land of Canaan. And he says this, Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So the drought is in your face, Baal. Yahweh is God. And also it is punishment for their idolatry just as God had promised. Okay, in Deuteronomy 11. So, verse 2, Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So, even though he's doing this covert style, he's still risking his life, right? So, he's faithful, faithful, servant here of the lord and ahab said to obadiah go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals so they divided the land between them to pass through it ahab went in one direction by himself and obadiah went in another direction by himself and as obadiah was on the way behold elijah met him and obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said is it you my lord elijah And he answered him, "'It is I. "'Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here.' "'And he said, "'How have I sinned that you would give your servant "'into the hand of Ahab to kill me? "'As the Lord your God lives, "'there's no nation or kingdom "'where my Lord is not sent to seek you.' "'And when they would say, he's not here, "'he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation "'that they had not found you. "'And now you say, go tell your Lord, "'Behold, Elijah is here.' And as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so, when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. Although I, have, I your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told my lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said. As the Lord, as Yahweh of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Why is it plural? Probably referring to various local versions of Baal Hadad. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So Asherah, in some accounts, it seems like maybe they, she and Baal got together. Um, So these God and goddess, these idols kind of go together. So anyway, they're all gathering at Mount Carmel. Who knows the idea of the 12th man in soccer or football? A few people. Okay. So if you live in Seattle or in Texas, near Texas A&M Stadium, you definitely know what this is all about. So if you're familiar with soccer or American football, how many people on each side? Eleven. So the 12th man is the crowd, the stand. So home field advantage. It's a big deal, right? So in football... The quarterback has to call plays, sometimes audibles. And if the crowd noise is so loud, the linemen, the guys, you know, like don't know when to go and it can throw you off and there's penalties and all this, right? And then obviously the adrenaline and, you know, the momentum that comes from the crowd cheering. So it's almost like a 12th player. So Mount Carmel would have been like, sorry, the reason I mentioned... Seattle and Texas. I didn't mention that. Um, Apparently CenturyLink Field in Seattle is like rank number one as far as the home field advantage and the crowd and the 12th man dynamic. Um, And they got the idea from the Texas A&M Aggies and their field down there. So there. Was anybody wondering where I was going with that? Sorry. Sometimes I. Okay. So Mount Carmel would have been like home field advantage for Bale. Dale Ralph Davis, this guy, writes this. In the annals of Assyrian king Shalmaneser III, Mount Carmel appears as the mountain of Baal. One might simply say Baal's bluff. Carmel may well have been ground sacred to Baal, and Elijah may have chosen it for that very reason. If Carmel was Baal's turf, we'll see a little bit later, well, yeah, we haven't seen it yet, but Yahweh's altar was torn down. Um, And if Yahweh whips Baal on his own turf, it will only highlight the supremacy of Yahweh and magnify the impotence of Baal. All right, back to the text, verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two opinions, two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So we'll come back to this later under point number four, but notice their silence here. They don't denounce him. You know, they're not scoffing at him like Ahab was. You troubler, what are you doing here? But they also don't step over the line and stand with Elijah and say, we're on the Lord's side. So the point is, where do you stand? Like, where do they stand? You're limping between two different opinions. So notice here in this section, in this whole situation, Elijah is focused on the people, not so much on Ahab, not so much on the prophets of Baal. They're going to be judged. He's after the hearts of the people. God is after the hearts of his people. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, at least publicly so. I mean Obadiah is on on his team, but he is kind of covert. So I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. So let them choose first. Then there can't be any claim of fraud or some kind of magic trick. You know, maybe he had some ancient Near Eastern equivalent of dynamite. And he, you know, set up this one bowl and kind of stuffed it full of dynamite. And, you know, just as he's praying, it covers, you know, and just lights the thing. And, okay, Lord, do it. Just bl- And then, boom, the thing blows up. And then it's, you know, not a miracle of God. It's actually something that he just, a magic trick that he, figured out a way to do. No, that's not it. You choose the bull, whichever one you want first, and I'll take the second choice. And nobody can call it into question. Verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. We like this plan. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Remember limping between two opinions, and here these guys are limping, kind of doing their dance around the altar that they had made. And at noon, you're going to hear some holy mockery, some holy sarcasm here. Elijah mocked him saying, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Because there's no one there. Baal is no one, he's nothing. He's a God created by man, a figment of their imagination. So all the prophets of Baal have to show for all of their worship is self-inflicted harm. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones... According to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Now, why do you think he did that? Why did he take 12 stones and repair the altar, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name, singular. You're supposed to be one, not this divided kingdom. You're supposed to be one, and you're supposed to worship the one true and living God. So with those stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sias of seed. You guys all up on your ancient Near Eastern, you know, measurements. Me either. So that would be like 18 quarts of dry measure. So this is a dry measure Vitamix container. And this would be like one quart, which is like four and a half cups-ish. Okay. So like 18 of these. And you'd be like, well, that's not a lot of water. Okay. It's in the middle of a drought. Okay. They probably didn't have a bobcat you know, to dig a big trench, like, you know, a moat around this altar? Are they doing it with, is he doing it with his hands, like with a rock? What's, I mean, so the point is, if this sacrifice is soaked with water and the water pours down and fills in 18 of these, that's, that's a lot of water, okay? So anyway, in case you were wondering. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh. Answer me that this people may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So their silence back in verse 21 was a divided heart at best. So at the very least, fear or shame and an unwillingness to publicly declare their allegiance to Yahweh kept them from saying anything. I mean, you can imagine just what they might be thinking. What if Yahweh doesn't show up for the showdown? it's gonna be bad for my public image if i actually kind of step out here could have social economic maybe even personal safety implications so i'm just going to just going to wait hedge my bets here so elijah wants god to make his reality known he is the real god so make it known make it known that you are god And please make it known that I am not making this stuff up. I am your servant. I am the true servant of the true and living God. And that the drought was at your word. It's not Elijah acting alone out of some, you know, personal spite. Ultimately, then, he wants the people to know that Yahweh is God. And isn't this amazing? Look at the language there. That this people may know that you have turned their hearts back. (laughs) Like declaring it before it's even happened. So even though they deserve judgment, God is mercifully at work here. Tipping his hand even before the fire falls. So verse 38, Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones. That's pretty hot fire to consume stones. And the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophet of Baal. Prophets of Baal. So who did that? Elijah going to run around and, you know, corral 450 prophets? No, the people had to do this. Their hearts had to be turned so that they're like, you guys are false prophets. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. If you're bothered by the fact that all these prophets were put to death, you need to at least know that this is not bloodthirstiness. This is not personal revenge on Elijah's part, this is capital punishment authorized by God himself in the Torah. Okay? Israel was a theocratic nation state. The law of God was the law of the land. At least it was supposed to be. So this is actually living out the Torah. Okay, Deuteronomy 13 says this, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, worship them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, for us today, this would look like identifying, rebuking a false teacher, a heretic. Could be excommunicating someone like that, trying to lead others astray from membership in the church. But again, if we're bothered that this is over the top and excessive, Dale Roth Davis has an additional bit of wisdom we should pay careful attention to. He says this, The problem is not with Elijah or the Old Testament, but with us. We react the way we do because, if we're bothered by this response, we react the way we do because in our subliminal view, apostasy is not that big a deal. God uses surgery, not breath mints on cancer. Idolatry is dangerous. The problem is not God's lack of refinement, but our lack of sanctification. So, the showdown. All right? So now let's look at a few themes that we find in this passage. First, gods and odds. Okay? Point number two. So Ahab's in power. Elijah's on the run. He's living like a fugitive. Obadiah, secret, su- secret subversive. <laughs> okay. Secret, subversive. You try to say it three times fast. Um, and only a hundred prophets of Yahweh are left and they're hidden in a cave. A couple of caves. Um, all the people are at best conflicted and divided. At worst, they're on board with Baal. So Here on the mountaintop, one prophet against 450 prophets. And it's on Baal's turf. I mean, how easily Elijah could just get himself killed here. But here's the thing. The odds are meaningless when God is in the equation. That'd be like saying, this is only going to work with people that know NFL football, but I think you'll still get it even if you haven't been paying attention. That'd be like saying, if the Jets... Well, is it, actually it's now the Jaguars, are they the worst now? Sorry, okay. Really, really bad football team had 850 cheerleaders and the Chiefs have one cheerleader. Oh, well then the bad team's gonna win because they've got more cheerleaders. No, that's dumb. The better team's gonna win, right? You guys with me? You know what I'm saying? Okay, all right. So, gods and odds bunch of water poured on the sacrifice. I mean, have you ever tried to start a fire with only wet wood? Okay, how, how, how does that go? How much easier is it with dry wood? So these Israelites are not dumb. This is God setting it up. Stacking the, the deck against himself so that it would be obvious that only an act of God could do this. So God oftentimes Intentionally sets things up this way so that it's clear that he's the one at work. Like David versus Goliath is insanity unless God's in the equation and then all of a sudden the contest is laughable because really the contest is Goliath versus God. It was laughable the other direction now it's laughable in David's direction. God loves to stack the deck, load the dice against himself. God often puts himself and his kingdom advance at a disadvantage just before he wins or there's kingdom advance. How about a 90-year-old post-menopausal woman and a 100-year-old husband having a son? Or how about Gideon's army going against the hordes of the Midianites Nah, it's still too many. still, still too many. Okay, 300, that's good. I mean, examples could be multiplied through Scripture. Maybe you're thinking of some. The ultimate example. Think of the weakness of the incarnation and the defeat of the cross, which was the greatest victory in human history. So God does this to ensure that no one can boast except in him. And he also does it to test the faith of his people because we walk by faith and not by awe. It's not by sight. He often stacks the deck against himself and against his people so that it's clear that the victory, the more than a conqueror victory, is all of him. He gets the glory. So, That's God's and the odds. Now, this account is all about proving who the real God is, that Yahweh is the real God, Baal is not, that Baal is a no thing. So, have you ever wondered, like, what was the appeal? Like, why Baal? (laughs) You ever wondered that? Like, they're so primitive and kind of silly. Like, I can't believe these people bow down to, like, you know, statues and stuff. Like, come on. We don't—we're too sophisticated for that. Well— Baal had political power behind him. Who doesn't want to back a winner? And it can be costly to go against the political economic current. Baal catered to felt needs. Who doesn't need fertility? Especially in that context. Agricultural, procreative fertility. Fertility. You remember when the Israelites spied out the land? What'd they find? What'd they find? <laughs> Besides really tall people. What'd they carry back on a pole? Like some pretty impressive produce. Like, you know, win at the county fair sort of produce. Right? You know, grapes and pomegranates and such. So if you're going to transition from nomadic shepherds to farmers, stationary farmers in a new land, shouldn't you take a lesson from the Canaanites who won all the state fair stuff with their produce? I mean, if they attributed their success to Baal, perhaps you should keep that Canaanite God happy. I mean, it sure worked for them. The weight of those grapes, testimony enough, isn't it? I mean, you can, you can still worship Yahweh. Just cover all your bases. Just add Baal. So Baal worship's about fruitfulness in the field and in the womb. So who wants to be barren? When everybody's a farmer, how can you not worship Baal? In fact, if things go bad and, you know, your neighbor farmer's not worshiping Baal, you might put some pressure on him. Like, hey, come on, get with the program. Maybe you're making him unhappy. You know, there was also sex appeal. Baal shrines had prostitutes. Prostitutes because everybody knows that the way to get Baal to act was to show he and Asherah what to do. Ritual intercourse was thought to prompt the same between Baal and Asherah, which led to fertility in the land. It's called imitative magic or sympathetic magic. So everybody's participating in sexual rights, all in the interest of social welfare, of course. And then finally, there's the appeal of control. This is a formula. Don't we all love a formula for blessing? Do these things and be blessed. Sacrifices to Baal, keep him happy. You got your crops. Except the terrible irony is that the control that you think you gain, the power, the blessing you thought you had, ends up leading to slavery and weakness and curse. So are there any contemporary examples? This is not just back there. Our hearts, like Calvin said, are like idol factories. We are susceptible to this. That's why at the end of 1 John, John writes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So are we too sophisticated for this? You can think of some more, but I mean, think about sex in our day. So if you can't get what you want, you actually can by means of porn. There's control there and pleasure and satisfaction until it renders you impotent and wrecks your marriage or your soul. Or how about retail therapy? There's so much that's out of our control, but, oh, if we can buy this and this and this, and you can control that, right? You can purchase, the comfort, the pleasure, the joy, the whatever. But obviously for many people, credit card bills and collection calls tell another story as far as a little bit of control and now I'm enslaved. Comfort food. There's all kinds of, what do we run to? What's our functional savior? What do we run to for comfort, for refuge, for strength, for help, for joy? A little bit of easily obtainable, controllable pleasure until it's out of control and you're frustrated to no end with how you feel and diets only provide brief relief. We could just multiply examples. Maybe it's a little more sophisticated. We don't have any, you know, statues that we're bowing down to, but we're all susceptible to idolatry. Serve these gods to get a little pleasure, a little control, a little help, a little comfort, but we end up enslaved. With Yahweh, the real God, You don't have control. He's in control. There is no formula. But there is real help, real hope, and real relationship, real blessing, real freedom. So all of this is not just a history lesson, folks. These are not just curiosities about the ancient Near Eastern culture. Theology has implications for doxology, worshiping, and discipleship, following. So point number four, choose this day. 1821, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Theology has implications. If Yahweh is God, follow Him. Our theology has implications for worship and discipleship. It's not just like this story about Mount Carmel and fire coming down, which is cool. It's not just entertainment. This is about allegiance and obedience. Guarding us from a divided heart, you know, just kind of trying to have our cake and eat it too. Straddling. You know, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. The issue is public allegiance to Yahweh. No secret support. No hedge your bets. Siding with, like, choose this day whom you will serve. So religion is not a private matter. At least not if Yahweh is God. Theology has implications. So are we, am I, are you devoted to the real God or are you divided the New Testament, in New Testament terms, James 4 4 says this, You adulterous people. Idolatry is like spiritual adultery, two timing. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Church is his bride. He is faithful to us. He wants us to be faithful to him. So to adulterous people, to idolaters, what does God say? He gives more grace. (laughs) Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So choose this day whom you will serve. Let's choose this day whom we will serve. No limping between opinions. And I mean, in practice, I know we know in our heads that Yahweh is the only God, that Jesus is the only way. But how are we actually living? So no limping between two opinions. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race that's set before us, throwing off the weights that slow us down, the sin that so easily entangles us. No sitting on the fence. Let's go all in with Jesus. All of our chips moved over onto the Jesus square. All of our eggs in the Jesus basket. No half-heartedness about the truth. Devoted, not divided. So, what is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The negative kind of corollary to that, negative way of saying the same thing is have no other gods before me. So the people of Israel had obviously become divided and dull. God had to do shock and awe a miracle to get their attention on the mountaintop. So Elijah confronts them and... Dale Ralph Davis says this, he did do this shock and awe, but, so quote, if Elijah is Yahweh's prosecutor, he's also his evangelist. If Carmel is Israel's rebuke, it's also her invitation. Which brings us to the last point. Ritual or relational. So remember that appeal of control with false gods, with idols? It's an illusion of control. There's a formula, right? We can just need to figure it out so we can go and get the desired outcome but again it's impersonal right religion is like that it's impersonal rituals formulas hail marys prayer beads you know do it enough times so you can kind of pull the lever and get the intended outcome mantras and repetitious prayers all formula impersonal formula And it's all in the interest of getting the deity to give you what you want or having the deity protect you from what you don't want. It's actually paganism. We can't control or twist God's arm to get what we want. So just think about the difference between the prayers of Baal's prophets and Elijah's. They're dancing around, they're in a frenzy they're just cutting themselves and blood's flowing and what does Elijah do? He simply, earnestly prays to the God that he knows and he loves. It's relational prayer. It's just like Matthew 6. Jesus saying, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows what you need before you ask him. So we don't have to twist God's arm or try to manipulate him to get him to do what we want. We don't need prayer beads or five times a day, you know, like bowing to the east. With Yahweh there is no control. He's in control. There's no formula, but there is genuine relationship. So this is like a motive check. Like why do you read the Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you go to church? Why do you give money? Why do you do this? Why do you do... Is it to manipulate the deity to get what you want? Are you turning it into a formula? Or is it worship because you love the real God? He's already given us what we really, really need. Himself. Through Christ. Relationship with Him. Not just rituals. And so we want more of him, and we want others to have more of him. So we, we do these things in order to have more of him and to give more of him. Dale Ralph Davis, again, writes this. Are these means of grace or gimmicks designed to manipulate, impress, or stir up God? You may not be a prophet of Baal, but you may think like one. So this is not religion and ritual. It's about covenantal relationship." Then the fire of the Lord fell, verse 38, consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. Listen, the fire could have justly fallen on the people for their idolatry and for their divided hearts. And what happens here? The fire fell on the altar. And consumed the sacrifice, not the people. The people were mercifully turned back to Yahweh when the fire fell on the sacrifice. Hmm, that sounds like it's heading somewhere. It's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? We deserve the fire of God's judgment to fall on us for our idolatry. We've all worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. I mean, our shame and unwillingness to declare our allegiance to God, we could just go on. So again, the fire should fall on us. Instead, the fire fell on Jesus. He was the sacrifice offered in our place. So on Mount Carmel, that miraculous sign was meant to make a new people, a unified people who would worship the real God alone. No more idolatry, no more disunity. And isn't that exactly what Jesus died for as well? He died for our idolatry, and he died to make a new people, a new unified people of God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. So the showdown is not where this chapter ends. It might be where we fixate our attention because we love the sensational dynamics, but it goes on to the fulfillment of God's word to bring the rain. At the end of chapter Eighteen. Yahweh's the rain giver. So as we close, just think of this. Dale Ralph Davis again. Um, and again, I'd encourage you, if you're looking for a good Bible study, pick up one of his commentaries and start reading it alongside the Bible, um, chap, Bible book that he's comment, com- commenting on. So he points us in the right direction when he says this. Perhaps the theme of the end of chapter 18 is covenant benefits restored which occurs not because Israel has demonstrated lasting repentance, but because of Yahweh's grace and Elijah's prayer. Here, Elijah is the covenant intercessor. Israel then enjoys covenant favor because God's mercy extends it and because an intercessor, even a mediator, wins it. Sounds rather New Testamentish. So God will go to extreme measures to get our attention and turn our hearts back. That's actually what Christmas is all about that we just celebrated. The extreme measures God went through to get our attention and turn our hearts back to Him. We deserve for the fire of judgment to fall on us for our sin and idolatry, but instead the fire of God's judgment, the judgment we deserve, it fell on Jesus. So he was consumed, the sacrifice for us, the Lamb of God, that we could be safely rescued from the flames. So he did it all to turn our hearts back to him, the real God, that we might worship and serve him alone. So church, let's go all in with Jesus in 2021. Let's not limp between opinions and toy with idolatry. Let's keep ourselves from idols. If Yahweh is God, let's follow Him. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a fitting song to close. Lord, You alone are God, the one true and living God, and You alone deserve our wholehearted, single-minded devotion. And Lord, you know where each and every heart is at and the competition in each heart for first place, for wholehearted worship. And we pray that you would Just crush the idols. Remove them. Help us to see how they're never going to make good on their promises. You alone are worthy of our worship. You alone are what we need. So may we repent of our idolatry. May we resolve by your Spirit in humble dependence to follow you alone, to give you all of who we are, to trust you with all of our heart, to love you with all of our heart. Give us grace for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.